Throughout the 20th and 21st centuries, the United States of America became very well known as the Great Melting Pot. Immigrants from all over the world came to this country with the dream that one day they could become Americans, no matter what their origins were. But just like my parents who immigrated from India, settled in the States, and had their own children, aka me and my brother, many immigrants find it difficult to pass the full culture of their homeland onto their children. And this could be due to multiple reasons. But because of this, many children of immigrants find themselves between cultures, sometimes confused and unsure of how to act, how to speak, and more. What parts of their culture do they adopt? What parts do they let go of? Today, I interview Akinyi Odoyo. She says that with the advent of globalization and immigrants settling in the United States, there isn't a comprehensive approach to cultural preservation for the next generation, who are referred to as third culture kids. Born and raised in Kenya, Akinyi Odoyo is a mother, sister, and daughter who believes deeply in the African philosophy of Ubuntu. She co-founded and directs Friends of Africa, a nonprofit organization that focuses on culture, passion, and connection. Friends of Africa is a flagship program of AfroKid Venture that mainly focuses on our third culture kids residing in Houston, Texas. During the day, she is head of marketing at Medical Bridges, a nonprofit organization that collects medical equipment and supplies from the U.S. and redistributes them to healthcare workers across nations. She passionately believes that we can rewrite our stories, heal, and thrive through deliberate and structured collaborative efforts. To learn more about Akinyi, check out her full bio in the show notes linked in the description of this episode. My name is Hethel Bauman, and this is The Global Health Pursuit. Akinyi, I'm just so excited. Like, we were chatting before I hit record, and I think we were already vibing. I'm excited for this. When I got to know about you, you know, it came through an email from Walter Ulrich, who's the CEO of Medical Bridges. He was like, you need to interview Akinyi. She has a great story, you know, and she works for us now. And I was like, I need to get to know her. So I reached out and I, <laughs> I think it took me like 25 minutes before she finally started talking about what she did, her community work. And I'm like, girl, you're too humble. Like you need to talk about all of this stuff. At that moment, I was like, okay, yes. Like I need to get her on the podcast. <laughs> I had to pry the information out of you, but <laughs> I got to it. I got to it. So Akini, tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, where you were born and how you ended up in the States. All right. Thank you so much, Hetal. This is, um, you are too kind and Walter is kind as well. So again, my name is Akinya Doyo. I was born in Nairobi, Kenya. I was born to a teacher, an entrepreneur, an amazing mother and an amazing father who is, I consider a philosopher and also a medical scientist. So we grew up in you know, lacking nothing, essentially. I'm the first born to four children. 
So I'm first of four. And so I was like the mom, the second mom to my siblings. So born and raised in Nairobi, went to school in Nairobi, primary school, secondary school. I went to boarding like many Kenyans. And then right after high school, I went to college for just one semester. And in her infinite wisdom, my mom thought it would be a good idea to send me all the way to Arkansas. <laughs> You're going from Kenya to Arkansas. Like, let me just ask you first. Like, what was that culture shock like? Okay, so, you know, you have this idea of what America looks like. And, you know, I went to Magnolia, Arkansas, which is a small town, a university town. And, you know, we had one Walmart, one McDonald's. <laughs> so it was a really, really... And you're like, this is what America is? <laughs> what? Where are the buildings? <laughs> I know it was it was a it was a shock but I think in the beginning I was more homesick than anything so I was a little bit too much in my feelings to even notice what was happening around me Mm, and I think yeah I think that's pushed me forward to you know just you know one one day at a time one step at a time so actually I had a choice of going to India to do law or come to the states to I don't think I had specified what what course I was going to take, but the paperwork for Southern Arkansas University came in first. So I was able to go through the process and ended up in Arkansas, Magnolia, Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you learn about the schooling in India? You know, that's a very good question. I, I think my mom got it through a friend. I was doing CP at the time at Strathmore College in Nairobi. So I was taking accounting and one of my classes was business law. Mm. And I loved, I fell in love with, with law. And so I was thinking, okay, maybe I can do law and then come back and practice in Kenya. So that's how it happened. That is so interesting. Okay. So you studied in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. What was the plan after that? Okay. So my plan going to Arkansas, I was like, you know, I will go through school, get my degree. As soon as I receive my degree, I will head to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> you already packed your bags. Exactly. Exactly. So I had no idea I was going to stay here this long, 20 something years later. But yeah, so that was the plan. The plan was to study and then go back home. And, you know, I didn't really have a solid plan after going back home. But you didn't go back home. I did not go back home. So I stayed in Arkansas for one semester. And then I had a cousin in Houston who encouraged uh-huh. me to move to Houston because I think there were more opportunities in Houston. And so I moved to Houston, ended up going to University of Houston. And that's when, you know, life happened. I had my son, got married and then got divorced and then <laughs> life happened, continued. And now I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> that's too funny. You have a child in the U.S. Uh-huh. and you grew up in Kenya. How did that change your perspective? How was it different having a child here? And what did you expect? Well, I don't think I had any expectations, but it was different in terms of, I didn't realize how African I was until I became a mother. Oh, wow. A lot of people, Uh I think, feel that. You don't realize how much the culture impacts you until something Right? Big happens in your life. Exactly. You know, it could be wow. something as small as food, you know, what you want to feed mm. your child, you know, and it's either 
not available or not easily available or, you know, because of the hustle and bustle mm-hmm. of your life, you're not, you're not able to prepare it as you want to. And, you know, what used to be the job of a whole village is now left to one person or two people <sighs> to do. Yes. You know, so it gets overwhelming and it gets lonely at times, you know, the cultural aspect of what makes culture, whether it's language, dressing, food, all that is taken away from you. And of course, that's Mm. not, I don't think it's deliberate, but, you know, because you're in a different culture, you have to now learn how to do things differently without guidance. That is so huge, that point that you made, because even in like the Indian culture, right? Every time I go to India, it's like your neighbors and your neighbor's neighbors and everybody around you, they're all congregating, being like, how can I help you? How can I, you know? Exactly. And that is so true because in the U.S. it almost feels like we don't even know who lives next to us. Right. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And I think we underestimate the therapeutic nature of culture and how, how we embody our bodies when you're in a familiar place. You know, so you can leave your house and maybe go get, you know, groceries and someone will see you struggling maybe with a cassette and help you, you know, in America, for the most part, we are, you know, constantly worried about the next thing, the next thing, and you're not even noticing what's happening around you. So it can be overwhelming. It's more about individualism versus community. Exactly. There's a quote on your website, friendsofafrica53.org. It says... The culture of a people is their identity as it affords them due recognition. There is no denial of the fact that what makes any human society is its culture, a Latin word which is derived from color, meaning to practice or cherish. For a society to be societal, it must be cultural. Therefore, society and culture are also intertwined. That is so profound. It sums it up, right? It does. It really does. Now that leads me into my next question for you. I think that your work that you do in your community, it revolves around this one word. And I want you to explain it to our listeners. Ubuntu. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes, that's how you say Ubuntu. What does it mean? What does it mean to you? To me, so Ubuntu is a South African philosophy that centers human collaboration as opposed to individualism. So it highlights the interconnectedness. So it means, it literally means I am because you are, Ubuntu, Kumuntu, Gabantu. So it means I am because you are. And to me, it means that your personality takes on the environment you're in. Mm -hmm. And the environment you're in is composed mostly of people. You know, right. so for example, if, if you go to work, you act a certain way, you speak a certain right. way. If you go to, you know, school or your, your child's school, you have to be a certain way. And so it's important to be conscious on, of who is around us and just be conscious of how we are responding to what's around us. That reminds me of that saying, you take on the personality of the five closest people that are around you. Correct. Wow. And also, I think that this is even more important within immigrant families and like first generation children. Like, I mean, I'm a first generation South Asian American. And what you say is so true. You know, if I go to work, then I act a certain way. I'm very much more professional. You know, you have to put on this persona. Then you come home 
and I'm like speaking in a Gujarati accent. Uh-huh. I'm still speaking English <laughs> to my grandmother. It's uh-huh. in Gujarati or the way that I speak with my parents is very, very different because I feel like that way, if I speak the way that I speak in a corporate environment, they're probably not going to understand me as much, right, you know? Right, right. And it's like a switch. Code switching, right? Right. Yes, yes. So how have you seen this in third culture children, specifically in the African culture, because that's what you are focused in mm-hmm. and and that's what you're immersed in. First, I want you to define what third culture kid means. All right. A third culture kid is a kid that is born in a culture other than their parents' culture, or they've spent a significant part of their life in a culture that's not their parents' culture. So they have Mm -hmm. their parents' culture, they have the culture where they're they're in, and then they have that third space that they're trying to, you know. The limbo. Exactly. (laughs) You're trying to, you know, put a little bit of, you know, American culture and a little bit of African culture. So my passion with African third culture kids is unique because it's an extra layer. They don't fit into the African-American category fully and they don't fit in, of course, the white America. And then in some cases, we don't give them our culture as much as we should. They occupy this space where, you know, they are trying to negotiate this Worlds, and then on top of that, there's you know there's the bullying mm. at schools. There's of course the racial issues that we you know see every day. The microaggressions that are even worse than the blatant ones. So they they go through way more than they can even articulate. So that's where my heart is. You know to find a way to create spaces where they can just be free to be whatever they want to be. They can you know, learn their culture if they want to. They can figure out what's, you know, happening in their minds when it comes to negotiating that space, that American space that is that can be so toxic at times, especially in, in schools. Because kids are mean. I know. So some of the spaces can be, we've done things like, you know, use play, learn Kenyan games. I've taught them Kiswahili because that's what I know. But the goal is just to create that spark, create a safe space for not just the kids, but the parents. Because, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times we tell them to just to be their best, but we're also doing what we're telling them not to do. We're performing. Right. You know, they're seeing us perform in the workplace. They're seeing us perform at school and they're like, <laughs> who are mm-hmm. you? You know, so it's hard to give what we don't have. So in, in providing these spaces, they're able to see us in a different light, relaxed. I mean, when you feel safe, you can create better and you can be a little more introspective. In terms of the direct experiences that you've had with your son, can you elaborate on any like specific times that you felt like this is so needed? You know, when it's Black History Mm. Month, you know, you have kids just being taught they're exceptional. We go to the extreme, you know, exceptionalism of Blackness and they're highlighting, you know, oh, this person came from this background and now they are a scientist, a doctor, a lawyer. But we fail to see the beauty in the ordinariness of being African. I think that takes away a lot because, you know, you're indirectly telling the children that unless you have these things behind your name or unless you have, unless you're doing well in these ways, then you're not successful, you know? And then we miss out on the little things, the little 
extraordinary, ordinary things that make them African. So that has been something that I did a lot, especially in primary school where we, you know, we'd go, I would add some cultural elements like food, music, you know, it could just be simple things like that to get to know culture better. Another thing is comments about, you know, his looks, whether it's his hair, it could be something as, you know, you cut your hair today, it looks good, implying that however your hair grows out of your head is not professional is not good enough for you to come to school with even in school projects being told what is good for that subject it's been a struggle dealing with Mm. that and so i'm looking forward to the end of schooling for him (laughs) oh my gosh wow that point that you made around when schools and corporations talk about black history month and they talk about all the exceptional people that come out of it i didn't realize even that can be detrimental to a society because then it makes you almost feel like, oh, I need to be a doctor. I need to be a lawyer. I need to be a scientist, right? In order to to be recognized. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, thank you for sharing that because I didn't realize that. Yeah. It makes you feel inadequate, right? And then when that manifests into different, what we call behavioral issues, then we send the child to seek psychological help as opposed to looking at the toxic environment. Right. It's like the problem is within instead of the actual environment. Exactly. Exactly. And then we have all these ICD-10 codes that we assign this child and call them, you know, bipolar. Not to, you know, not to say that. That's not a real thing. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But we individualize psychology so much without even considering all these microaggressions that, you know, that makes this child feel inadequate. And, you know, that shows up in various ways in how we interact with one another, how we interact with them and how they interact with their peers. Wow. Like, what are some examples of seeing changes within these kids over time since they've started within your programs? Because I think that that could be so rewarding for you. The example that I can think about mostly is in the beginning when I first started with the kids, I had a couple of kids that were shy about using their African names. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. And at one point, yeah, at one point I called one of... I call them my children. One of my children, I call them by their African name and they cried. Oh, wow. And that broke my heart, you know. And then at another point, you know, another child who was able to speak Kiswahili would not speak it. But then years later, these same kids are embracing their names. Mm. They're embracing their culture, the language, and they want to learn more. And the ones that knew how to speak it want to retain it. And that's, you know, that's very encouraging. You know, and it takes a village. It's not just me, it's the parents, it's people who agree to, you know, offer their spaces for us to to just be us and, and just figure it out and just ask questions without seeking answers or without creating such a structured environment for them to learn. They can just, you know, we can let the chips mm. fall where they may. Let them let them decide what they want to do with this information. Exactly. That is so empowering for these kids. Ah, I love it. I just love it. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I'm, you know, there's so many things that I can relate to. 
obviously my background is not African, but you know, in the South Asian culture, it seems there's so many parallels. The thing that you said about how the parents don't give them the culture as much as they want to for many different factors. Like my parents were, they were busy working and they were trying to perfect their English and they were trying to understand how the school systems worked here. Like it was very, it's very difficult when you don't have the time or space to even give that, you know, and for you to be able to bring them a space that would otherwise not be available for them. I think that is really huge because I often think about in the future, like once I'm married and have kids, what is the culture that I'm going to be giving my kids? And that's often something that I think about because Indian mm-hmm. culture is so, so beautiful. I would hate to lose on that, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And so I just love this conversation, Akinye. I hope that when people listen to this, if they're in the Houston area, to get involved. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for this time, Akinye. Thank you. I just feel so blessed to even have met you because you give off such a beautiful aura. You're so kind. You're super kind. <laughs> And yeah, I hope we keep in touch. Definitely, we will. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and guest, head over to the show notes linked in the description of this episode. There, you can get access to resources, links, and ways you can get involved in the pursuit for global health. And if you loved this episode, don't forget to write me a review on Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast on Spotify. It helps me get in front of more people just like you and continues to elevate the causes we are so passionate about. I'll see you in the next one.